Welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm Alyssa Walter. Today our guest is Dr. Rochelle Davis. She's an Associate Professor of Cultural Anthropology at the Center for Contemporary Arab Studies at Georgetown University, one of my uh, former professors. Uh, Dr. Davis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, in this episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Davis about her research on Palestinian village histories, which that is the title of her 2011 book, the winner of the Albert Harani Mesa Book Prize uh, that year. Uh, it's a it's a work of anthropology, also a work of historiography in some sense. Dr. Davis uh, studied over 100 uh, published histories of different villages of historical Palestine, written by authors, uh, former inhabitants and the descendants of inhabitants of those villages, some of which uh, no longer exist. So, Dr. Davis, we've had other scholars on the podcast who have talked about some of the different types of sources for Palestinian history and really the unique issues that historians of Palestine and Palestinian history uh, face. We talked to Bashar Dumani about trying to study Palestine, for example, in the Ottoman past and how we can get at Palestinian voices uh, in that deeper past. And we, we've also talked to Shai Hazkani, who's a former Georgetown student, about how uh, within Israeli archives, uh, I don't know exactly how to say this, sometimes documents that you used to be able to use to study the Palestinian past either disappear or get reclassified for political reasons. Now, I think your work fits nicely into this conversation because you're looking at a very interesting genre, I think, sort of uh, the realm of popular history, the non-academic history, uh, that on one hand gives uh, Palestinian scholars a, a certain voice in narrating the, the past of the place they come from, but on the other hand, doesn't necessarily uh, conform to all the conventions of academic history that we would expect when we're using a book as a source, whether secondary or primary source. So to start the conversation, I was wondering if you could just give us a sense of uh, what kinds of histories these are, um, in terms of what are what are the, these books about? What's the? I mean, obviously each book might ha- be different, but as the genre, how would you characterize the Palestinian village histories you looked at? Well, I think the first thing that is most notable about them is that they write from their own perspectives and for their own people. So they are writing histories, and they say this outright for their children and their children's children. So they're they have a very specific audience in mind. At the same time, they use a variety of sources. And so that's what really makes them interesting to think about, not just how they're telling the the stories, but where they're getting the information from that they're trying to tell about these histories. And then they vary in terms of what they tell from everything from family genealogies Mm. to geography to crops to who owned what and who had what store to bigger um, sort of narratives about famines in the you know late Ottoman period or um, World War One, the 1936 to 1939 revolt. And then they have a really, really rich sections, which I didn't write about in the books, but one day will be a new project on 1947, 1948 mm-hmm. and what the villagers did. And they um, they have a lot of, oftentimes they'll switch to much more eyewitness accounts at that point as well. And so these, uh, I guess these histories are a combination of sort of giving the local geography and the customs and all the things we would mm-hmm. expect in a village history. But then also you have this aspect of sort of writing that particular location into the larger narrative of Palestinian national history, I guess you could say, like the the different uh, 
keystone events in the history of Palestine during the 20th century. Sure, but they tend to also, they, 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 they all frame themselves as part of Palestinian history and as part of Palestine. But then they also um, kind of try to re-narrate some of those events hmm. because um, Palestinian history has been sort of in its, in its um, sort of more official, if one can use that word when talking about a place that doesn't have an official um, existence. Um, but but the kind of dominant narratives are very urban and they're very big picture political acts that, that take place, whether it's Balfour or like the 36 yeah. to 39 revolt or et cetera. So these village histories um, really are, are this combination of sort of folklore, yeah. um, like salvage uh, sort of anthropology, like so much was done around Native American populations um, in the United States. And then combined with this way of talking about the politics of the time um, from within their own communities and what was going on. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could back up for just a moment and tell us, you know, when did communities start to write these histories? Because as you're saying, they seem to have a lot of specific purposes. And I imagine those purposes perhaps evolved over time, that maybe they started local and then became more of a political project to contribute to the Palestinian narrative? Is that how mm -hmm. you would describe it? Yeah, I think um, more accurate than to say when they started writing them would be to say when they started publishing them, because they may have been writing them at all different times, and we, or yeah. I don't know that information, and it varies, because all of these books come from Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, uh, the West Bank, Gaza, and inside Israel. So they come from kind of almost all areas of the Palestinian di diaspora, including also from the U.S. and Denmark, and there may be a few other places as are, are well. Most, are most, but are most of them authored by authors outside of uh, West Bank in Israel, or it's very... No, nope. it's totally very... It totally very I mean, there's everything. Across the board. So, okay. Across the board, yeah. Um, but they start being published in the 1980s. Why the 1980s? Do you think there was a particular moment? So I think there were... Um, I think there were two uh, particular moments um, in, in particular. One, which others helped me figure out, and this was not my own contribution to the analysis of all of this, was that when the PLO um, left Lebanon in 1982 and moved to Tunisia, the Palestinian national struggle was no longer located, the, the sort of Palestinian national movement, sorry, not the struggle, but the movement was no longer located in a place that had a border with historic Palestine. So as the PLO was kind of pushed out and away, I think there was a strong movement within Palestinian communities to say, we, you know, they're, they're representing us, but they're not on a whole nother level. And we need to sort of think about who we are and how we want to frame our own stories. And I think people really started writing at that point. I think there was a, a, a similar movement with um, the kind of folklore movement that was popular throughout the world in the yeah. 70s and 80s. And um, Sharif Karane, who uh, is one of the people behind the Birzeit series, which I think the first one was published in either 86 or 87, that was his training. He's a folklorist by yeah. training. And so he's uh, one of the people that really pushed the oral history element of it. And, and so th those are some of the first ones that are coming um, that are being published systematically is the Birzeit series. And is this still a thriving genre, or did it 
Was there like a, a peak in sort of village history production? I don't know if there was ever a peak. There was a sort of a, a quick beginning. Mm-hmm. And then throughout the throughout the late 80s, 90s, and in through the 2000s, there are ones being published. I mean, what we are finding now is that people who lived in the village are, for the most part, no longer writing them. Whereas in the 80s and 90s, people who were born and raised in the village were writing village books. But now it's descendants of them. Oh, right. That's a question I wanted to ask you about, too. So over time, as new generations of authors are writing these down, have you seen changes over time in the way that the narrative of the hist- of the village itself is changed or the way that the purpose of writing it in the first place has changed? I would say there's about three or four th- that come to mind that were written by people who were in their 20s um, in 1948 and so really were adults and had had functioned in society as adults when the Nakba happened and when Palestinians were driven out. And so th- those particular books are very different than the others in that they concern themselves with, um, with details that are extremely interesting to the historian and that, that, that the kind of collective memory of the village would sort of represses or suppresses or doesn't think is 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 interesting or important or relevant or anything. So because it's too personal to that. Too not specific. not necessarily too personal. Just just only it's sort of only something someone would would know and want to tell. So it's. Um, it's like details of how you traveled from a particular village to the nearby city. And it's only somebody who sort of did it who would think that that would be a relevant hmm. sort of story to tell. Um, one of the authors of the village of from Salama, which is in the Jaffa area, was a lawyer. And so his kind of recounting of what had happened before 48 and who was doing what and, and you know, he's got all this issues about land sales and who owns what. And that is just because of his training and who he was. And the other books just don't have that because they don't tell it. He also was interesting in that a lot of the authors don't kind of air the dirty laundry of, you know, family feuds or who did what. And they say post-1948, you know, it's not time for that. It's not relevant. Yeah, we had conflicts back then with each other. We still have conflicts. But the story we need to tell about who we are is that we're Palestinians and this stuff isn't relevant. He didn't buy that line. And he was like, that's who we are. And we need to know that, of course, we had conflicts then, just like we have conflicts now. And we've had ways of solving them then. And we have ways of solving them now. He he saw that as part of, you know, important part of who Palestinians are, rather than trying to sort of give a cleaner, sanitized version of history. And actually, this issue of sanitization, which for me, kind of as an environmental historian, was very interesting. You talked about how they even some authors are reluctant to uh, discuss issues like former disease environment. Maybe we can talk about that later. Mm-hmm. But first, I, w- I want to get for for our audience get a clearer sense of uh, who these authors are, or maybe the the diversity of walks of life they come from, and mm-hmm. this sort of issue. How they uh, wield their sources, and wh- where they from where do they derive or claim their authority to narrate the history of their villages. So there's a number of elements to this, which I think um, it took me a long time to figure out and read through a lot of the sources and then had to, you know, exercise my analytical um, 
chops to try and figure out how am I going to talk about these. But one of the, I think there's a, a few things that were, are very obvious and is that the vast majority of authors are men, like 90% are men. Um, also, at least half of them are uh, teachers or former teachers. And so this kind of act of continuing their educational career even after they've retired yeah. is, I think, an essential part of how they saw themselves as authors, that they were still teaching people about something, and that was now about who they were and who they are and, and their village. Um, those are the most clear sort of two demographic trends. Um, and what age are people when they're writing down the histories usually? It varies. I mean, some are, most are retired from their jobs. So most are 50s, 60s, 70s, some are in their 80s when they're doing it. Some do it with the help of others. Um, but I also, there's also a series of them done by uh, um, a young man in his 20s. Um, who wrote first about his village and then wrote about other villages. Um, and then the process by which they, um, they, they go about collecting the information is also, they, they're usually very clear about it in their books, and they usually say, I talked to all the old people, or, you know, I lived this, so I know it, and I talked to people from, from the village. And then when I did interviews with authors, that was one of the things that I asked them about was, how did you get information? And so one of the things that some of the authors were very clear on was how contentious a process this was. And if they only talked to people from one half of the village or two families, but not all four families, then they would hear it. Um, you had one author had to reprint yeah. the book um, because people gave him such a hard time about the first version. So they also then developed techniques within themselves to to kind of have consensus. One, one man from... Um, Bella de Sheikh, um, who lived in Yarmouk refugee camp in Damascus, he said, I got all the old people in a room together. You know, we, we got together and then we walked through the village um, with and, and we, we figured out who had land on which side of the street and who had what. And we collectively sort of put it together so that nobody claimed more than their, you know, than, than their uh -huh. real share. So they also used these kind of community ways to make sure that nobody got sort of too excited about how much they could claim in all of this. Was it common, or is it common to have a, a village or a former village have more than one author publish an account, or is it, for the most part, just one author per village? So according to um, the Institute for Palestine Studies book, um, All That Remains, there's 418 villages that were destroyed in 1948. And I have now about a 120 village books from about 100 villages. So usually there's just one, but because of the way the diaspora happened and the way people were scattered, there's, and some villages were really large, mm -hmm. um, some villages are like somebody from the West Bank will write a book, somebody from Jordan will write a book, somebody from living in Lebanon will write a book. Yeah. So they may not have known that the others wrote a book. Now, post sort of 2000, um, a lot of more people were transferring the books around. But back in the early 90s, um, sort of before the peace sure. agreements and stuff, people, and before the internet and that, people weren't tra transferring them around. So they may not have ever known that they were. And in a couple of cases, I heard of people who were responding to other books that... Yeah, that other people um, wrote. So, yeah, I mean, but but the duplications are by far the sort of, uh, they're a fairly small number. Uh, so in that same vein, 
the authors of these books are, are reading each other's books, maybe as models when writing their own, or do you see something going on there? Well, I interviewed about 30 authors, and I asked them specifically, I said, you know, what was the inspiration for this? And some people did see other people's books, particularly in... Uh, Jordan, where there's a lot of, there's a central library and people were putting copies of their books there. And so once a few went in, then people started um, seeing them. Um, so yeah, so there's some inspiration by, by other people's books. Um, but I think they just also thought that this was a really good way to reach a large number of people. But they did complain that the young people don't read them. Was one of the well, this is a question I have about, I mean, so we've talked about audience and that they were writing for their children, their children's children, certainly for their community in diaspora, perhaps also in a larger but maybe more abstract sense, writing this or contributing to a national history of Palestine. But in practical terms, how were they actually distributing these stories and how were they getting read by other people? I mean, you mentioned this library, but in the absence of that, what was the expectation and the methods by which they could try to get this out? So some people would put them in bookstores and they would be sold. Um, some people would um, just tell everybody and people would come to their houses and either get a copy or buy a copy. I mean, people mentioned that they often had to sort of bankroll this whole thing themselves. Some of the ones in Jordan um, were published out of the out of the village Diwan, which is... Um, like a sort of a village organization in Jordan where they kind of organize around funerals and weddings and those sorts of things. So um, I know in one case you would pay a subscription to be part of the, and it was symbolic, you know, a couple dollars a year to be part of, to register with the family, um, or sorry, with the village D1, and you would get a copy of the book. So there was this sort of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, it was much more sort of personal networks that got the books out, or people would get a whole bunch of copies and send them to their relatives in, you know, Chicago or wherever. So when I started doing research, um, particularly in Damascus, I would ask people, how do you learn about your, your village? And um, it, this was in, in Yarmouk camp. And you know, do you read a book? And people would say to me, no, I don't need to read a book because I can go talk to my great grandmother or I can go talk to my, you know, great uncle or I can go talk to my father. So there was this sense that as long as somebody who was alive in the family that they could talk to about it, they didn't, they weren't going to go to a written source. But I think the passage of time is really um, proving to sort of show that that is... Um, yeah. Yeah. The the books are going to become increasingly important because so many of them preserve actual voices. I mean, they were actually like written in colloquial with, you know, the story by, you know, in Muhammad about mm -hmm. how you would go about a circumcision or something. Yeah. Welcome back to Autumn History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Alyssa Walter talking to Dr. Rochelle Davis about her work on Palestinian village histories. We've just introduced this large genre of uh, popular history uh, among Palestinian authors, over 100 books about various villages uh, in historical Palestine. Uh, now, for a lot of our listeners who are either students of history or historians themselves, they're probably, they want to know a little bit more about how uh, these books can be used as sources for history or what they have to add to our academic historiography or any kind of project. 
So I guess maybe a good way to start off, Dr. Davis, is to ask you, what are the major points of difference between what is covered in these uh, Palestinian village histories versus what you see covered in, you know, the familiar history books we're used to, what they have to add to that uh, historiography on Palestine? Sure. The the Palestinian village histories are very... um they very much focus on people's experiences. So there's a lot of stories about various um, things that happened or ways ways things were done, agricultural practices or um, the way, um, yeah, a lot of sort of those folkloric customs and traditions and and Mm -hmm. things like that. So, and and they're, they're really rich and important kind of stories and understandings, uh, there's a whole section on how they, uh, whole sections on the land and how, and all the names for all the different parts of the land in the village and on then all the different, so it's recording something that is lost because mm-hmm. people don't have access to that land, they don't live there, and their children are no longer um, farmers, so they don't yeah. even know many of the terms for that sort of stuff. So, And ma- in many cases, these these aren't even, this information isn't even captured by Ottoman or British uh, documentation, right? Correct, correct. Because these were very much about the lived practices. Of, I mean, the lived experience of of being on that land and how those people who lived there yeah. talked about it, dealt with it, related to it, used it, etc. So, in that part, they're they're very rich. Um, I would say, in some ways, though, those the ways they talk about things is also very um, very framed within their own norms and notions of respectability and and um, how things should be represented. So a good example of that is no one in any of the village books ever talks about um, land ownership other than sort of the name of the patriarch and what he owned in, in, in land. And one of the village books put in about 75 or so um, land ownership documents, um, British mandate documents that oh, wow. someone had in a in a collection. And so the author, who happened to be a woman, um, just photocopied them and put them in the back and the appendix. She didn't analyze them. She didn't talk about them. She just sort of stuffed them in there. And and, and in a lot of the books, documents are, are, are sort of used as evidence yeah. that this village existed, that people you know that you have your 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 british mandate driver's license with the name and you're from this village and so they're put in there as sort of evidence but they're not really um discussed much but when you go and you read these um british mandate period um land documents you see how many women's name were on these land documents so women are buying land they're selling land they're owning in shares with other people and and how um how those stories of women as as having this role in society, and they may not have been the ones buying and selling. It may their their husbands or brothers or fathers may have been doing that, but yet they still had this property in their name that is completely erased in the village um, histories. So at the same time that these oral uh-huh. histories and these oral collections enrich our um, notions of history and what is out there to be known, they they repress and suppress sure. other stories as well, like these that the documents. If you go back to the documents, they reveal. But I think one of the important things to to conclude from this is so few Palestinians have access to these documents yeah. because they've been taken away from them just as as the land was taken away, the documents were removed from their possession mm-hmm. and either you know put into other archives or burned or whatever so so in a sense, they are writing histories 
but they they are unable to write the histories with these documents as 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 part of it. Well, I mean, what's interesting for me about what you just said is that you're talking about the problem of maybe like the histories reinforcing a patriarchal view of the past that was not the case. It's not so different from any other genre of historiography, really. We face these same mm-hmm. uh, troubles with academic histories. I mean, and and the the issue of negotiating multiple voices that people have in the community that's that's mm-hmm. not unique to writing village histories, right? There's something shared there, almost in a sense. Although I do think it's interesting this idea of writing a a community history through consensus, and that inevitably in those negotiations that so often have to do with contemporary, you know, maintaining of relationships with your with your peers and your neighbors, yeah. how that inevitably will have an effect in in silencing certain topics. You talked earlier about you know not wanting to air dirty laundry. I'm curious, are there other areas of silences that you see as being kind of particularly problematic in this genre, or is it really just, is gender kind of one of the primary silences that you see? So I think there are two other things. One is sort of this notion of respectability, or what gets told as history. Um, And the other one is just a more interesting one about religion. Um, And so the one about respectability I had a, I had a whole conversation with an author about um, what constitutes tarikh, what constitutes history, and he said very specifically there are things la yuarikh, like like that don't get that should not become historicized. They shouldn't be recorded as history. And his one huge example that just kind of sent him over the edge and actually made him write his own village book in response to a previous village book was a story that uh, that a that a, a woman had had narrated in 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 the interview that the first book's authors had done with her about the village Mukhtar, like the the sort of elected mayor or the mayor of the village had been riding on his donkey somewhere had hit his head on a branch and had kind of passed out but had not fallen off the donkey and the donkey turned around and brought him back to the village and everybody was like subhanallah and this is great and this sort of stuff and he was like that is not history you don't write that down and put that in books that's fascinating he was just he just thought he said la you yes it happened yes we can talk about it but it doesn't it shouldn't become maktub you know it shouldn't be something that goes down through the ages and why is that what is the so I think it had to do with a couple of things. One, that it it, it it made the mayor look not good, although I'm not sure why, but but I think it was part of that. But it was also this life of, of people riding around on donkeys. Ah, I see. Because mm. I had other authors um, tell me about um, one man wrote his village history and um, published it, and he was a school teacher, and he wrote a lot of different books. And he said some young people from his village um, kind of came to him, not really young, but people come, came to him from his village and they were like, who are you to write the village history? Your father was an orange seller. Mm. And he was like, he's like, you know, people want these, these histories that don't tell the real, you know, that, that aren't real. And they want to think that everybody was living in beautiful stone houses. He says, when actually we were running around barefoot, you know, like snot faced and, you know, and, and we, 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 we didn't even have bathrooms. Right. Um, and he says, but, you know that's our history, and we need to tell that. But but the current generation doesn't want to think that way about their parents and grandparents. Well, and isn't there too such a, a pressure on Palestinian historiography in particular to say, you know, look, their very existence was threatened. Certainly, the existence of their village was wiped off the map or or appropriated for a new community. And so, what pressure 
to convey the seriousness and the legitimacy mm -hmm. of their history and experience. I'm Certainly, yeah. Yeah, so in the sense of respectability, I'm, I don't know another mm -hmm. word, but that mm -hmm. it was, you know, that it was something to be, yeah, a presence. Yeah, yeah, I think you're really right. And you mentioned the issue of religion is also one that comes up. Yeah, um, it was interesting to me because it wasn't until I had a fascinating um, um, interview with an author who was who had taught religion in a girls' school in Jordan, and he has since passed away, Allah Yerhamu, but he was just a wonderful person to interview because he knew religion by the book, right? I mean, he was he taught religion and religious studies, but he wrote in his book all about these practices with the weli, with the, like, saint shrines uh -huh. that were around and all these things of going and visiting them and slaughtering an animal there and, you know, and, and the um, nidr where, the, where there's a, a somebody takes a vow and they place that vow on their like on their children and yeah. they don't cut the child's hair until the vow is or, or these these kinds of practices and he says he told me he said and I had it because I asked him about it because he was one of the few people that really wrote about those sorts of things and he said it's haram he said we shouldn't have been doing that because now but you know we didn't know what it was but he so when he was writing about it he would write all these things and then he would add a sentence at the end that said but that was haram and we know better now or sort of, you know, he would say like, you know, we didn't know what, at the time, but that was not how you should practice Islam. And so he was one of the few authors that wrote about all these really non-orthodox practices that were very, very common. But so many of the other authors either had not experienced that or their forefathers and mothers didn't tell them those things. Or when they went to write it down, they they cleaned it up and were like, I'm not writing about that. So mm -hmm. the, the very um, strong kind of orthodox presence, and I think particularly in Jordan, which, had a, which has had a much um, stronger, I don't want to say Salafi, but a much stronger kind of gulf coming up from the Gulf, kind of pushing that stuff out. Um, that I think that's that's been particularly aware, uh, particularly in the awareness of people in Jordan to kind of not portray those sorts of things. That's fascinating. Is that true for Christian authors as well, writing about you know, Christian villages? or? Yeah. Um, no, and there aren't a lot about... There's only a couple about Christian villages. Um, well, I guess I don't know. Were, were villages often mixed like Th there were a fair number who were mixed um particularly in the galilee um and then there were a couple of villages that were basically just christian villages and they didn't have it's harder to tell because i there's less of an orthodoxy at present i think kind of trying to, to shut some of those things down in the in the in the christian orthodox community so no i didn't find that same they didn't they didn't go into into the religious practices in the same detail. Although one of the first village books is on the village of Al-Bassa, uh, which is a largely Christian village um, mm -hmm. written by a Christian author, and so he was very concerned with folklore and and making sure. And that and his book is actually framed as a as a a, a book of folklore um, from the Galilee, not um, oh, not a specifically village book. Now, your story about the religion teacher in Jordan raises the question. Uh, Chris and I have been talking about, which is, you know, is the site of the author, does that start to shape the historical narrative they tell about their homeland? So is being in Jordan, does that 
did you see a distinct mark that would make, or, you know, again, someone in Lebanon or someone in the West Bank or elsewhere? I didn't see anything because, because I think there were other factors that were had a bigger influence on how people wrote, and that was their age, the role of an editor, if there was one, um, and and more sort of who they had access to in the community to talk to. So, for example, some of the authors didn't interview any women, and consequently they have no songs. And some people said, I only interviewed women to get all of the songs and all of the folk tales, mm-hmm. but when I wanted to talk about um, land and stuff, I interviewed the men um, or some of these other things. So you you have... Um, you. So I think there are different things rather than the location of where people wrote them, where they where they grew up. That, but but some people may have not had a, a huge, like if you take a, a a particular village and if half of it went to Lebanon and only you know and a fifth of it went to Jordan and the person starts to write it out of the the out of Jordan, they wouldn't have access to a large number of people from that village, and so they would their their book would be. Um, seen as not accurate and not representative because they wouldn't have, you know, had four-fifths of the family Mm -hmm. members to talk to. I guess that brings up another question that will interest the historians out there, which is uh, how do the village histories compare with other similar sources for history, such as oral history? I mean, you mentioned that there's there's, um, information about anecdotes, about memory of past historical events that are very important that are often commemorated in, in the oral history if we look at the work of Ted Swedenberg on the, the Great Revolt in the 30s. Uh, are these similar sources? Can you can you compare them with each other? Well, different authors do different things. So some authors, um, and particularly the ones from the Bitters 8 series, but some other authors as well, just interview all sorts of people and then pick up those interviews and either take them by category, like if they're talking about agriculture, and just pick up the story and put it in there with all of the village dialects that you might want. And attributed to the speaker. And attributed to the speaker. Um, And then other people don't, and they just sort of turn them into bland informational bits. And I that's my judgment on them, that they get bland when they say, the children in the village went to the Kutab for education, whereas other people will tell long, detailed stories about going to the Kutab for education. So I, I, it really varies according to the author and what they put in there. And, and some of them are, um, some of these books I think will live on forever and ever because they are so rich and so amazing and so full of information. And other ones will be accepted totally by the community, but they're just very kind of methodical and clean and just give you just give you the facts sort of thing. So you mentioned at the very outset that one of the motivators of, you know, many factors, but one of the motivators for these histories was to, in some way, put villages back into a a rather urban-dominated history of Palestine, into a nationalist history that has foregrounded the experience of urban intellectuals and activists. 
And my question is, I mean, do you think it's had that effect within the Palestinian community? Have these village histories made a difference? Or do you think maybe the moment is still to come when they'll start to have that impact? Or do you also see any, this is maybe a long shot, do you see any room for these histories challenging an Israeli historiography now that we have, I mean, there are Israeli historians who are, you know, who acknowledge and, and deal with the displacement of Palestinians, the erasure of village histories. Ari Shavit's book, My Promised Land, made a big splash about acknowledging the displacement of, of villagers. So I'm curious, do you think these histories themselves have had the impact that they sought to? Yes, I think they do, because I think their primary goal is to pass on information to the following generations. And that's what the author stated is, state their goal as. And I think that that is definitely the case because people have these books and they have them on their shelves. And when their children, you know, have to write reports in school or when they want to tell somebody about their village, they go look at them if there's nobody around or, you know, they look at the pictures or it's just a it's just something to have that they use to that they keep as as indicative of who they are and and and. That. So even if they don't know that information, they know that it's there for them. Um, one of the other things that a lot of the authors say as a goal is to, to, you know, sort of to prove that we are not just a, you know, not just a name on a map, but that we're all these other sorts of things. And I think they also succeed in that because they are written and reproduced and held onto and kept in libraries and, and collected, etc. So, um I think from my perspective, one of the really sad things is that I probably have the largest collection of these books by virtue of being an American academic who has the luxury to, you know, get a grant and spend the time traveling around to do that. Um, And also because I have an American passport and because I can travel to all these countries, whereas a Palestinian wouldn't necessarily be able to. So that's part of the impetus about kind of trying to put them in a publicly accessible archive because other people can't access them. Um, yeah. Public, publicly accessible archive like on the internet. Um, but um, to answer your question about Israeli, sort of the Israeli historiography, I mean, that would be, I think, just the most amazing project to put together would be these Palestinian history books, uh, village history books, and other kind of um, f- sources, along with the Israeli archives as they are... Um, sort of uh, released and to kind of write those those histories um, and to really cross check them and 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 see what people are saying and how they saw things the same or differently or you know and I I found a few events where I had read them in something like Benny Morris or somewhere else and then I would see them in the um, in the village um, history book but by and large I don't think there's a lot of parallels there um, at least in my experience. And so it would be really interesting to do it much more sim- sim- uh, systematically to see. But Well, I think you're absolutely right. And I was I was uh, present when you first released this book and gave a talk at Georgetown. And, and you mentioned something at the end uh, that there's a similar genre of literature among Armenian, uh, d- among the Armenian diaspora of exactly this, village histories written by people who are living in either Los Angeles or... South America or France or Beirut or somewhere like this, publishing the history of their village in uh, modern day Turkey, which usually no longer exists. And actually that was a big inspiration for me. I went out and I, I got 
I, I was familiar with this genre and I said, you know, we can use these to write history. I've actually been able to utilize those histories a little bit in my own research and they do provide a very different picture. These little details that really do so much to uh, complement the archival record, I guess we could say. Uh, but in that same tone, I want to talk about the genre. You know, you mentioned digitizing them, putting them on the internet. It reminds me of this Hushamadian project uh, by Vahe Tashtian, uh, of again, using these Armenian village histories, uh, furnishing the information, translating them in English into Turkish, and putting them on the web. Uh, and, you know, the f this site's now a couple years old. It's getting really huge, and it really resonates now with uh, Armenians, maybe... 60 years ago, nobody read the, the books that their grandparents wrote, but now this is playing a big role in, you know, public uh, or collective memory, I guess, or so commemoration, I guess, of, of these Armenian villages. And so this, this is kind of a long comment, but it's making me think of like the form that popular history takes. You know, in the United States, when people engage in this type of activity, they're not writing the history of villages, they're writing genealogical history. And I remember from Salim Tamari's class that, that I took at Georgetown how maybe authors in Syria would write like family household histories kind of in a similar vein. Uh, is there something unique about this experience of displacement uh, and the way that, you know, the popular history takes this um, particular village history form with this, with this uh, geographical focus, as in the Palestinian or Armenian cases? Do you think this is a broader phenomenon? I do think it's a broader phenomenon. Um, chronologically speaking, after the Armenian books that you mentioned and, and, the, and the, um, the genocide and the displacement of Armenians and, and then the trying re reconstructing that history and, uh, in, in books um, following that period, the same thing happened um, with Jewish communities in Eastern Europe. And so particularly uh, from Poland, and there's been a collection in English of, it's called From a Ruined Garden, um, a, a collection of those books. One of the interesting things is the languages that they're written in. And so it's hard to do something across um, comparatively because you have to know so many languages. Um, so there's the ones written in Armenian and English by the Armenians, but mostly not in English from my experience of trying to read them. Um, and then the ones from Eastern Europe are uh, written in Hebrew, um, Mostly Hebrew, um, also English, and then some of them are written in Ladino, and some of them are written in um, Yiddish. And so kind of navigating amongst them requires, I mean, a real scholar or somebody who really knows all of the languages. You had, oh, yeah, and then the larger comment about the genre, I think there's, I think there's two things that are, that are relevant. One is destruction. I mean, just the, 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 the destruction of these communities and of these peoples that, that took place um, is an impetus for survivors to then write that down to sort of, so that it, do, it doesn't get lost, right? So that's one part of it. But I've also, I've also tried to collect books about Palestinian villages or other places in, in Syria or Lebanon or, or elsewhere that are village histories, but they're village histories of places that still exist. And there's a, whole shelf there that is of, of st I call them still extant villages. So there's, there's all of those as well. And I think we even do that in the United States. And I imagine they do it in Europe or elsewhere, where 
sort of the local historical association will sit and write the history of you know when the when the village or town or whatever yeah. was founded and who were the founding fathers and then maybe they'll put in some interviews with various people and those sorts of things so you know maybe it's just a human impetus mm-hmm. to kind of chronicle and gather that information and put it in written form because we are a literate literate lit- we are literate yeah. societies and so we write stuff down you know we used to tell it we used to these used to be sort of our 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 tales that we would sit around and talk about and tell people and people were expected to memorize them but but so um in your book you mentioned that you have these 40 histories of villages that still exist mm-hmm. how are those histories different i mean do they differ significantly in substance and tone and narrative style or are they actually fairly similar they're fairly similar except they continue after 1948 so they mm-hmm. they they tell a very yeah. different story and then they have a, a lot more um, pictures of material things, um, and and they they have pictures pictures of you know the the you know the village from nineteen you know forty two, and then they have the, the picture of the village in nineteen eighty eight, for example. And so, they 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 aren't about something that has been wiped out, but yet they keep the narrative going. But the topics and the ways they talk about them tend to be similar. <laughs> Dr. Davis, in, in thinking about this continued process of of, write, uh, of writing these histories that are commemorating the past, and you mentioned scanning the books and putting on the web, we I, one would imagine that today the internet plays the role that maybe 20, 30 years ago these village histories played. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. There's an amazing uh, website called palestinerememember.com, and they have a portal for each village. Um, and... It allows users to uh, upload uh, photographs, stories, news. Um, there's message boards, um, and they have um, many pictures of villages, both before 1948 and um, and after, when people have gone back to visit. Um, and they they, I find them a a, a really a, um, kind of a continuation of the village book but in a different way because they are so uh, the content is so driven by the users that they, yeah. people can upload things and, and put material there um, and and so unlike the village book where the author kind of controls the content to, to the most part uh, palestineremember.com allows um, allows anyone to put anything up of course it's moderated but for the most part you know y- they, they let you put up material if it's relevant to, to the village. And so it's kind of a, a, um, a whole different way that, um, that, that the village story and the village history is being told, and primarily by a younger generation, um, just because of access to the Internet. And, um, and so, so it's, a, it's a really exciting place to go look and just dig through because mm-hmm. there's all these um, different stories. And, and it's gendered differently as well. I mean, it's men and women, and, um, and it's a very um, collegial place to be in as well. Oh. well I've, I've seen some of, some of these materials on the Internet. Once in a while, someone will share something on Facebook. And like as a historian, I'm just wondering, like, how can I incorporate this kind of rich material into you know, uh, scholarly research, you know, because there's, there's so much great stuff out there that people are putting up images and, and other things that 
not easy to access, but very important yeah. and really yeah. gets a, a number of voices out there. And I think that for those who, who are listening, probably inevitably, especially if listening to the end, inevitably interested in writing Palestinian history and the history of Palestine, um, I, I think that uh, our discussion today has emphasized that these village histories might provide voices that are worth incorporating uh, into any study. Uh, alongside those other sources that people are using. And I want to thank you so much for uh, coming and talking to us today uh, about that subject. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, for those who want to find out more about what we've been discussing today, we've got a, bibli- a bibliography on the website where you can find out about Rochelle Davis's book, Palestinian Village Histories, Geographies of the Displaced, as well as other relevant resources. We'll have links to the relevant websites mentioned and also provide a space for you to leave your comments and questions Uh, for the podcast. That's also where you can find out about related episodes, other episodes of Ottoman History Podcast, and get in touch with our Facebook group, now over 20,000 followers listening and commenting on Facebook. I want to thank you all for listening, invite you to join in next time, and until then, take care.